Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Well, thank you. Uh, thank the, I'd like to thank the community of, uh, for inviting me. This is my first time in Arizona. And all I know about Arizona is that it's a desert, and I assumed it was a desert in Jewish life, but apparently not. <laughs> I assume most of you heard the name of Buber, have some familiarity with his thought, or at least the focus of his thought, namely philosophy of dialogue. And that's what I'll try to exp uh, explain and expand upon. <clears throat> uh, Buber was born in Vienna, but raised uh, since the age of three uh, in the heart of traditional Judaism, an area called Galicia. Uh, and he was raised as a, as a traditional Jew, an what we call an Orthodox Jew, um, and eventually found his way into the no man's land that we call modern Judaism, where one's identity is no longer secure and, and Jewish commitments are no longer uh, self-evident. And his life was, his mature life was an exploration of how we can make, uh, regain and reappropriate some sense of Jewish spirituality. And eventually came to the concept of dialogue. Um, and he, in that uh, perspective or that uh, context, he became a very prominent teacher in German Jewry, although he was not a German Jew, never fully mastered German language, and I'll tell you about that shortly, um, but is known as a German Jew, in fact, as an arch-German Jew, although he wasn't, uh, not only because he didn't have a full command of German, but um, he was never fully at home in the cultural sphere and the Jewish landscape of Germany. Um, in fact, he probably didn't have a home because he no longer found a home in traditional Judaism and no longer a, a home within um, the established denominational life of German Jewry. And that must make some interesting, I believe. Um, he came to the concept of dialogue in midlife. Um, he was 46 years old, and before that he was engaged in some concept of mysticism, but a mysticism that didn't have God at its center, but some ecstatic experience that took us beyond the everyday world in which we dwell. And I'll return to the, his, his uh, path to uh, his journey to the concept of dialogue. But let me just begin uh, in Jerusalem. In 1938, he was obliged to leave Germany by the Nazis, the Gestapo. felt he was too effective as a teacher of the German Jews in these desperate hours. And he came to Jerusalem when he was 60 years old, which is um, a decent age, but, uh, but he was no longer certain whether he wanted to be a, a professor, and he wasn't a professor, actually, by disposition. I'll explain that as well. But he certainly was an intellectual and a man of uh, constantly sought to explore um, ways of being in this world. If I just pause for a moment, was a few days ago, I, I had, unfortunately, gave a, a eulogy for a student, a 91-year-old student, 
approaching his 92nd year. Um, a very healthy man. Um, he would do 15 chin-ups a day at the age of 92. And, and a sharp mind, and he just completed a dissertation that he was now copying and editing. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he was on a trip to Mexico and slipped, fell in, uh, into a concrete wall, and was no longer with us. But I only mention that now to say something about Buber. At my eulogy that I delivered in his honor, in his memory, I quoted um, Buber. Buber said, upon reaching what we call old age, um, old age is a glorious thing if you know how to begin anew. Um, and Buber constantly revised his thinking. And, and that's true even if us, those of us are younger, to begin anew, not to be uh, um, closed in any given position. Uh, constantly revising one's thought. And that's the nature of dialogue, and I'll proceed. When he came to Jerusalem uh, in 1938, and he walked down the streets of Jerusalem, you, know, you perhaps remember he has a long white beard, uh, a very prophetic figure. Shulhud ran, up, ran up, uh, after Buber and say, Elohim, Elohim, God, God. <laughs> and he would turn around, stroke his beautiful white beard and say, yes. But Buber was not a prophet, nor did he regard himself as such. In fact, he had a beard because when he was born, there was some birth accident and he had a split lip. Uh, rendered him very conscious, because children can be very nasty to one another if they have, uh, with respect to deformities. He also had a speech problem, slight speech problem. Soon as he became an adolescent, he grew, grew a mustache. That didn't work, because the lip was, a, was the lower lip. Uh, and then he soon had a beard. And he cultivated the beard, not for prophetic intention, but to disguise, camouflage, a birth defect. And that is crucial for the story I'm going to tell you. So let me just begin with dialogue, the concept of dialogue, and we'll go back and then forward again. And I'll take my hint from you. You can ask questions. Each of you allow four questions, as in Pesach. So it's four, one, two. Anyway. Uh, he introduced the concept of dialogue in a book that you're perhaps familiar with. Um, and it's called I and Vow in English. And it's a very strange translation of the German, Ich and Du. And those of you who may be familiar with German, in German, we speak of Du in very circumscribed relationships between a parent and a child um, and close friendships, but truly close friendships. And also when we address God, even though God is referred to in the tradition as the Father of he in heaven, the Ribonosholam, the, the Sovereign One, we do address God uh, in German prayer with this very special word, do. In German, uh, certainly in, in Buber's era, uh, it was very hesitantly used and very carefully used. I mentioned that I gave a lecture this morning on Franz Rosenzweig, one of Buber's good friends, uh, I've been in the Midwest. I, I retired from Hebrew University. We have obligatory re retirement at the age of 68. I retired a bit earlier. And, and since then, I've been teaching four months a year in the University of Chicago, Midwest. In the Midwest, I don't know how it's here in, in, uh, in, in Arizona, but everyone's very friendly. Hi. <laughs> Instantaneous friendships. Uh, that was not the case in Germany, although people can be friendly. But... To 
address one another in this little word, do, D-U, uh, was um, very hesitant, very careful, very, very considered. Buber and Franz Rosenzweig, whom I discussed in the morning, were good friends, certainly in terms of the Midwest. Um, they worked together in various projects, very intensely. Their families were friendly with one another. And it was only after eight years that Rosenzweig, in a poem, he was, I'm doing this because he was a very ill man, and he could only communicate with his one finger on, to a specially constructed type, through a specially constructed typewriter, wrote a poem, a poem in which he basically asked Buber, are we ready to address one another in this very intimate term, do? And Buber responded, likewise in a poem, yes, not the words, yes, we are ready to address one another with this do. Eight years of friendship, at least what we would call friendship, even in Israel, we would call it friendship. However, only after eight years, in this very circumscribed fashion, through a poem, they asked one another permission. Not permission. Are we ready to address one another as Purdue? Um, they did. Rosenzweig replied to Buber, and this is also telling, now that we are on the Purdue, as the Germans would say, and even making a verb, Dutzen, may we... <laughs> Make dress one another in Purdue. Uh, Rosen saying, now that we are Purdue, uh, in my heart I will continue to say Z, the formal uh, German word, the usual word, um, level ex expression of respect. What I understand of this moment of addressing one, of, one another at Purdue in this intimate term is that we achieve trust. It takes a long time to cultivate trust, as I understood it. Buber, later in his life, wrote a book about the nature of Jewish faith, and he noted that the Hebrew word for, for faith is trust, and that is the heart of Buber's project, the cultivation of trust. A friend of Buber's, a psychiatrist, and what we now call existentialist, a man named Nanju, but married to a nice Jewish woman, Carl uh, Jaspers, sought to explain Buber's thought through uh, an allegory. Every human being is akin to a snail. Uh, and a snail hides with, behind a shell and very reluctantly exits the shell. As soon as there's a shadow of a threat, the, the snail retreats into the shell. And so it is with human beings. We all have ways of protecting ourselves uh, protecting our vulnerabilities. And there's no human being who is not wounded in one way or the other. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher, said the tragedy of life is that we each have a childhood. And childhood is difficult. Uh, you're on your own. Once parents, um, you know, I once gave a lecture in Jerusalem in Shavuot. Shavuot is what we studied all night. And it was sort of a modern setting. And I was asked to speak about Buber. Um, and I had difficulty explaining um, this concept I'm trying to elaborate with you. And a man in the audience said, well, it's like a child who's taking those first steps That's at eight months, nine months, a year or so, and only having gained the trust of his parents, of her parents, will he take those first steps, assured that his parent will not let him fall. 
Um, and trust is the grammar, of, the bedrock of, of life. That, but it's difficult uh, to maintain it and sustain it. Um, and thus we all, one way or another, encase ourselves in a shell. Buber calls in German a panzer, which is like a tank. <laughs> uh, but we all have a panzer that we protect ourselves. Lifestyles, the way we speak, our titles, um, many ways. I'm at the university, uh, a very elite university, a very subconsciously university, elite university, and a lot of professors develop, and our students, the graduate students, all develop ways of, of navigating in a world that's just harsh, often harshly judgmental. Um, you're vulnerable to the opinions of one, your fellow professors. I, I, don't, I lived in Israel. I don't remember the, the vocabulary that prevails at the University of Chicago. Everyone refers to one another as brilliant, very productive, uh, uh, amongst the professors, right? Uh, we have all this matrix of evaluation, uh, and you're constantly on the guard. Um, and the students, likewise, are very competitive, vulnerable to the judgment of their professors, vulnerable to the opinions of fellow students. Um, it's not a very happy world. I must say I have two children and four grandchildren. I, I keep them away from the university. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> I shouldn't say it so loud, but anyway. Uh, but there are areas of life. All areas of life can be harsh and brutal. Um, so we do protect ourselves with, uh, with shells. Of course, we manufacture them, create them in various ways. Um, but only if we exit the shell are we really ourselves. Uh, Buber calls it being present to others. Uh, and here he develops his, the basics of his philosophy. I imagine all of you know, are familiar with it. He said there are two fundamental, fundamental ways of re, uh, entering the world, of navigating our journey through, through life. And one he calls I-it. And the it refers to objects. There's a little cup with water. Um, you have a pen in your hand. I, I don't know what that is, but anyway. <laughs> uh, objects are referred to as it. But often we, return, we respond to one another as it. Even though you may say you or he or she. Um, in other words, people are often seen as objects. And as objects, we put, place them in this comparative um, matrix. He's Jewish, not Jewish, a f woman, not a woman, young, old, bespeckled or whatever. Uh, and that's important. Uh, you introduce yourself as a physician, right? Well, you have to obviously, as a physician, uh, make some uh, get, enter the world through it with your anatomy, the problems of. But um, and politics is a question of it. You know, try to persuade us not because they were attentive to who we really are, but they want our vote. I have a time. I don't have a TV. Uh, uh, at the hotel I was staying the last night here, I turned on the TV. It's you're bombarded by advertisements to buy this, do that. Uh, that's treating us as it's, <laughs> uh, trying to manipulate us to uh, respond. But as it's, we're not very, not ourselves. And none of us really feel totally comfortable being treated as an it. Maybe feel guarded and protected if you responded according to our. Our, our profession, the way we represent ourselves, but not really ourselves. Um, of course, trust is lacking. 
in many ways, not many ways, in fundamental Buddhist philosophy is I-it as opposed to an I-you relationship. An I-you is very difficult to achieve and sustain and maintain because it is a question of trust that you're not going to be hurt, that, you're going to be, that your vulnerabilities, your wounds, your, your fears, your joys are appreciated by others. Very simple way of thinking about this. Um, I'm married for 48 years. Even though I live in the Middle East, only one wife. I, that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> it doesn't mean I don't have fantasies, but I am only married to one woman. Uh, and as we courted each other, um, um, we gained trust, and a trust that has deepened through the years. On a superficial level, um, we celebrate each other's birthdays. We're interested in each other's biographies. Um, we've woven our lives, our biographies, into one, uh, one st shared story. And certainly when we have children, that stories that our children are shared. Um, but trust is constantly being sustained. But it's what maintains the relationship, this trust. Uh, my wife trusts that I won't act on my fantasies. Or, or I on hers. I'm trying to be funny. Just to evoke some laughter and smiles, but anyway. Uh, but it's just, uh, uh, trust is a, a lifelong project because they're constantly going for new relationships and new experiences. Um, and this relates for Buber to our relationship to God. Um, Buber had no clear understanding of who God was, and he would claim any theological statement about who God is would be uh, mistaken. Uh, tell you a little story how he came to that understanding. He was already in his before he wrote this book, I Am Thou, who was a very famous man. He wrote extensively on mysticism, myth, Hasidism. I'll come back to why Buber was drawn to Hasidism. But he was very famous. Uh, and he was a member of the Zionist movement, the cultural wing of Zionism, that sought to, to recreate and reestablish Judaism as a culture which would sp speak to our humanistic modern sensibilities as opposed to political Zionism. Uh, in 1913, there was already a whiff that war may break out, a war which eventually called the First World War, but only the First World War, World War, uh, World War since we had a second, sadly, tragically. Then it was just simply called the Great World uh, War. Uh, and he was visited in 1913, um, and then a war broke out in, 19, in 1914 by a very prominent uh, reverend, in fact, the father confessor of the Kaiser, the emperor of Germany. Uh, British in origin, but a very prominent um, evangelical parson, uh, 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 a supporter of Zionism, but from a perspective that if the Jews return to the Holy Land, it will be indication that the, uh, Jesus will be returning. And he came to Buba really excited. I see war. I see uh, the great catastrophe that's predicted by in the book of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel is referred to as an apocryph uh, apocalyptic text, which suggests that redemption will be preceded by a catastrophe, much like the birth pangs of a, of a woman going through labor. Difficult moment, but it concludes with a glorious moment of giving birth. And so we understood in apocalyptic literature, such as the book of Daniel in the Bible, that a 
uh, a cataclysm will precede the glorious moment of the return from the Christian perspective of the Messiah. And he came to Buba quoting from the book of Daniel. Buba, you're a famous Jew, you're a Zionist, don't you share my enthusiasm? Uh, and Buba was a little puzzled, but he didn't want to offend us. After all, as the Kaiser's <laughs> confessor. Uh, and the, but the, the confessor had an inkling that Buba doesn't, is not quite uh, convinced, doesn't share his enthusiasm. So as Buba was leading his guests back to this train station, to catch a train back to Berlin. Bu was living near Frankfurt, Germany at the time. It was Rebbe Heckler is his name. Turned to Buba. Tell me here, Dr. Buba, do you believe in God? And Buba said, oh, how do I answer him? And he mumbled some ambiguity that he hoped would be interpreted as, yes, I do believe in God. But then he came home and said, why couldn't I say without hesitation, without ambiguous, ambiguous, uh, formulations that I believe in God. And it took him several years to have a clear sense of what he wanted to say or should have said, or how he understood. He said that if we speak about God in the third person, such as the book of Daniel, God does this, God wants that, God is this, I'm not convinced. How do I know what God wants, God does this? But if to believe it means to speak to God in the second person, and with this do, some sense of trust in an ultimate reality, then I do believe. And that was one of the seeds leading him to his book on I and Val. Ish and Du in German, Anivata in Hebrew. And that goes back to a fundamental position in Judaism. Rabbi said that Hebrew word for faith is uh, trust. God created the world and behold it is good, comma, Behold, it is very good. But we all experience life not so good, not so very good, uh, from our own personal experience. Uh, as well, of course, we just look at the world as tragedy. Um, and yet, Jews are not to for despair of the world is ultimately good. We have, we human beings, have a responsibility with, to make sure the world is indeed good and very good. Um, and that's the nature of Jewish faith, trust in a God who we don't really have a clear, ultimate understanding of who he, she is, but we do somehow trust that the God created the world and, and it is good and it's our duty to render it very good. And that's the message he seeks to elaborate in this little book, I and Thou. So a little vow is not so innocent, a small word, but a very big menu, so to speak. Um, and our trust in, in the world and in one another is ultimately anchored the boober in our trust that the world is good. Um, and there's some um, source that calls upon us to celebrate the world as good. Uh, so let me go back a little bit into Boober's biography. Um, When he was three years old, his mother suddenly left, ran off with a German, not a German, a Russian officer. Boomer, as a little three-year-old, ran to the porch, with the balcony, I should say, seeking his mother, hoping she would say goodbye or return, and she never did. She just ran off into 
the distance. That was a fundamental sense of Buber's life, a marvelous child. And he continues to his 86th year when he passed away in Jerusalem, almost 87. Where's my mother? And a mother, of course, um, is a source of unconditional love. You don't negotiate the love of mother, because sometimes you do, but such as Buber. Um, but he lost that nurturing relationship to a mother. The father didn't feel he could raise Buber alone, so he sent Buber to live with his grandparents, who protected him, um, but only protected him. Didn't really offer the same type of nurturance that he had believed he would receive from his mother. And that rendered Buber very t uh, alert to um, the need for nurturance. There's a wonderful German word um, that is missing in Hebrew and in, uh, in English. Geborgenheit. Um, Geborgenheit suggests some sense of security, comfort. It's related to the word birth. Uh, he didn't have the Geborgenheit, so he was very attentive to the fact that um, life can be treacherous. Um, one little uh, almost strange moment, but a very telling moment. Um, as a young man, uh, he attended the university at 18, he had no idea how to uh, approach a woman. Um, similar story of Kafka. Uh, I'm set almost 78, I still don't know. Fortunately, my wife brought me into her life, but I would not have, I'm just trying to be, again, humorous. <laughs> but it's difficult, especially if you come from an orthodox background where you're not at all uh, prepared to develop uh, relationships. But fortunately, I married a woman a bit older, and, um, and she took charge. Um, but he was still very hesitant. And eventually he, he developed trust in her and he wrote her a letter. Note the letter. His first romantic love letter to his future wife. And he said, all my life, and I'm quoting more or less verbatim, I've been missing something. And now I know what I was missing. But you've given it to me. You've given me a mother. That's not a love letter. Imagine if you're right. I don't know if... <laughs> Then if you've written love letters or <laughs> received love letters and say, I've been looking for a father or a woman, you're my mother rather than my lover. Um, uh, but it's very telling. Yeah, she had to convert, right? She wasn't... Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that aside for the moment. Okay. Uh, well, you already spilled it. Uh, his wife, Paula Winkler, was a Catholic, born a Catholic, uh, fled that type of community uh, in Germany. Um, and um, was a follower of a, this is a pecan story, but maybe sells, sells something. She was a follower of a man named Alshid Bebey, a man who had an Arabic name. He was Jewish, of course, and he was a guru. He created a syncretistic sort of religion and had various followers in his little exotic community. This is in the 1890s in Germany, uh, in the mountains of Munich. Um, and she was refer referred to Paula. She was only 18, the most beautiful woman in the group, the most advanced, so to speak. Ways of perhaps today would seem all right. That's, we live now in a sexually, more or less sexually free world, but then it was really very unusual. So she, uh, um, I don't want to tell you the whole story because it's a chapter in my book. <laughs> and maybe the movie will <laughs> follow. However, uh, uh, 
the members of the community were very concerned that um, she was taking over the role of his wife, this Al-Rashid Bey, um, a Russian German Jew, a German Jew who was raised in Russia, but uh, converted, so to speak, and he wore robes, and uh, you probably know the type. Uh, very intelligent, and his wife was a famous, the wife would become a very famous German poet. Um, and his followers felt that Paula was disturbing something they felt that was, um, they wanted to preserve the relationship between the guru and his wife. Uh, so they collected money and sent it to the University of Zurich to study Sanskrit. Uh, and there, and it was very rare, in Germany women were not in, in, allowed into the universities until after the First World War, when they established the Weimar Republic. Swissen was a little better, but very, very few women, very few. But there she was, a very liberated woman, barefooted with a guitar on the back. Uh, imagine what she looked like in that kind of setting. Uh, and a lot of men went, I think the Americans say, bananas. Is that the expression? <laughs> Fell in love with her, or at least were infatuated with Paula. And she focused on this young man, Martin, who was shorter than she, frail. He said had very small hands. People refer to his hands as being feminine, whatever that means, but small and dainty. Uh, already had a little beard, uh, and she took over. Um, and eventually... Um, converted to Judaism, embraced Judaism, and more prior to that, the Zionist cause, your people are my people, quoting mm -hmm. the book of Ruth. You know, Ruth, who's um, the grandmother of King David. Where I live in Jerusalem, the streets are named after various uh, biblical characters or personalities, and we have a street called Rehov Ruth, the Ruth Street, and at the beginning of it, there's a sign explaining who the person was, and all it says in Jerusalem is the grandmother of David. She was the grandmother of David, but a convert to Judaism. And the, and the famous line in the Bible is, your people will be my people, and she was. So I took care of that chapter for you, okay? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And they were a couple of that um, trusted in each other. Um, she helped improve his German, but more than that, everything he wrote in German, she had to read first, because it was a native language. Uh, he knew German well, but never felt totally at home in German. His language at home was Yiddish, although in the collected works of, well, collected, we have three volumes of Buba's letters, uh, mounting to 1,800 letters, that's a lot, but we have in the archive over 50,000 letters, so selection. And in the first volume, we have letters between Buber and his grandparents in German. I am that to go to the archive and look at these letters because some things weren't clear. They're in Yiddish. And they're just translating to German to make them sound more German, more, because the book was based, the letters are basically presented to the German public. So they want to see Buber as a German thinker. But his correspondence with his grandfather was in Yiddish, in, Yiddish, in Hebrew letters, Yiddish and a real Yiddish, a very fine Yiddish, uh, with his grandmother, who was raised as a Hasidic woman. She had a scheitel, you know, a, a, a wig, um, very orthodox. She learned German surreptitiously at the age of 16, but never really was her language. Uh, it was forbidden for women to, in those circles in general, to acquire a knowledge of German. And she sought 
to speak German, but she wrote him letters in Hebrew letter, in Hebrew letters with sort of German, a mixture of German and Yiddish. That's Buber's background. In school, uh, he went to a Polish school. Uh, it was the language he knew best. The language he loved was Polish and Yiddish. You heard of the great author uh, Agnon. Agnon eventually earned a, lower, uh, a, uh, a Nobel Prize in literature. And he and Buber were very close friends. Uh, and they were, well, they spoke Yiddish to one another. <laughs> in Yiddish, you don't have this ceremonial uh, of, uh, use of language to establish or demarcate relationships. Um, and they told Maiselach, and this brings me to what I wanted to say before I was asked to speak about Buber's wife. Um, when Buber went to the university at 18, he, he ceased to practice traditional Judaism. Uh, he, he sought to distance himself from what he felt was the, the onerous burdens of traditional Judaism. Uh, and unfortunately, apparently, his grandparents just told him, wash your hands before you, you know, you have a special ceremony to wash your hands. Um, don't eat shreif, don't eat mankosher. The regiment of traditional Judaism without, let's say, its soul. Um, and that was uh, problematic for many people of his generation, as you're perhaps uh, aware. But it took him a long time to find his way back into Judaism. Um, eventually he joined the Zionist movement, was not very persuaded by political Zionism, but some sense that Judaism can be reconstituted as a culture. And that's a process. But in that context, he turned to Hasidism, from which he knew as a child back in Galicia, in a region of the Austrian-Hungarian, Hungary, today is part of the Ukraine and Poland, then it was part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Um, and he decided that he will rescue, so to speak, retrieve what he understood and intuited to be the spiritual beauty of Hasidism and present it to the Western world, to Jews and non-Jews alike. And he gathered these stories, and many of them were eventually gathered together with his friend Agnon, um, and tr translated into German. Of course, in a very specific sense, um, one of the features of German Protestant culture, and that was the dominant culture in Germany, was the notion that God is in our souls, not through ritual, but what the Germans call innerlichkeit, inwardness. And he saw that in Hasidism, but something more fundamental. Hasidism, uh, I'm certain you're all familiar with it, the movement that arose in, in um, Eastern Europe um, in the 18th century and crystallized as a movement and uh, captured the imagination and the, and the soul of a large sector of, of East European Jewry. Um, it was a response to a tendency in uh, Jewish piety informed by Kabbalah that only the elite who have access to mystical uh, teachings and mystical uh, ritual can achieve a full relationship with God, which meant the average Jew was left out because the average Jew had to work, couldn't spend all day in a synagogue, couldn't didn't have the language or the, and the, uh, the, the facility with the language to enter the highest spheres of Kabbalistic teachings. And along came the Baal Shem Tov, a man 
who was himself an initiate in certain aspects of Kabbalah, he said, you can serve God everywhere. And what caught Buba's imagination is you can serve God in the marketplace, not necessarily in a synagogue or any arcane mystical activity. Simple people who are not necessarily well-educated can serve God, um, achieve a relationship to God, however they may understand. So he tells stories about people who whistle or, or have a relationship with uh, with uh, the denizens of uh, the residents of, of, of nature, birds and the like, um, butterflies. Uh, God is present in all aspects of life, and we can serve God in that fashion. You can see how this ultimately informs Buber's notion of dialogue. Through dialogue, we establish not only a relationship, dialogue, I vow relationship, called the dialogue eventually. Um, we can have a relationship with our fellow human beings. And Buber even says, with the world around us, trees, he has a passage in I vow about having a relationship with cats. As you know, cats are much more reliable than our fellow human beings. They come home, they jump on you, and they lick you. And human beings have, we're mercurial up and down. Sometimes you come home, oh, your wife is troubled, or your children have problems. You're not always embraced with love. Uh, you have to work at it and re, re, resuscitate the trust. Um, animals are much more reliable. Uh, they don't have moods. Uh, but that instructs us, according to Buber, about the relationships um, and the difficulty of relationships with our fellow human beings. But for Buber, this is a way of relating to God in all aspects of life, even if you don't have a firm understanding of God. Um, because dialogue is, as he calls it, I vow relationships, are ones of trust, and therefore the trust that we ultimately have in, in life uh, as created as we, our tradition calls it, refers to it as being created by God. The theology is not a crucial to Buber. It's, it's the mode of our, our relationship to the world. Um, and he says there are people who claim, proclaim that they know God, they, um, and God is really from, absent from their lives. And there are people who claim, don't know who God is, and maybe even declare that they, they don't believe in God. Yet in the substance of their lives, the... the the poetry, if you wish, of their lives, they have this relationship to God. Um, what is crucial ultimately for Buber is, again, that we must learn to serve God in all aspects of life, what he calls the everyday, the trite, what seemingly trite aspects of life, the banal aspects of life, the way a teacher relates to a student, or a student relates to a teacher or his fellow students. Uh, it's not simply being chummy or giving out good grades or but uh, the level of trust. I have mentioned that I uh, had studied at Brandeis University where I earned um, a doctorate. And I came as a very timid uh, student, diffident. I always sat in the back row, hiding in my shell, shell of silence, shell of, of sitting in the corner, trying not, hoping no one would recognize me. Um, and I had the good fortune of teachers who reached out to me. Um, and when I wrote my dissertation, I, I quoted George Eliot, a, a woman, but she was obliged to have a man's name, very different era. And she said something that really struck me and gave, uh, 
help me crystallize or understand my relationship to my teachers. And it says, she said something very simple, but echoing Buber, although she obviously didn't know Buber, she preceded Buber, those who trust us educate us. And my teachers trusted me. They said, Paul, my real name is Pinchas, but I go by the name Paul because Pinchas is a, an awful figure. Uh, he, he's a, a misanthrope, a misogynist, and really ugly fellow. I will never forgive my parents for giving me the name Pinchas. But, but of course, they wanted my, my, my father's mother had passed away two or three years before I was born. Her name was Pearl Rojo. So the name gave me Pinchas Ruven. Eh, anyway, I forgive them. <laughs> Somehow I latched onto the name Paul. <laughs> and Hebrew is pronounced a little different. Paul. Uh, my grandchildren call me Samba Paul. <laughs> uh, any event. Uh, um, They somehow reached out to me and trusted and said, Paul, you have, I mean, they always say, uh, you know, my, my name, Mendes, is, is a fake name too. Um, my wife is a Svartic Jew, this direct descendant of Spinoza, uh, Portuguese background, family that was uh, uh, conversos, Moranos, and found my way back to Judaism. Uh, so when our first child was born, I was just simply floor. When our first child was born, in Jerusalem, we wanted to have access to both traditions. My poultry, Ashkenazi, uninteresting background, and my wife's glorious Portuguese Sephardic background. So we combined the names, Mendes Flor. Sounds good, don't <laughs> Anyway, when I was then, when I was graduate school, I was just simply uh, Flores. I missed the floor, and they trusted me. And somehow I gained trust in myself my own voice, um, and that's a great gift to give to a student or anyone, to another human being. Uh, good parenting is, of course, to educate your children to have trust in themselves. And they can be, you know, Martin Buber's son, whom I know very well, uh, and by, by force of circumstance, I was drawn into the Buber family. And for the last 30 or so years, I'm the advisor to the Buber family in terms of, of the... Of the Publications, what we of the literary estate, and that began with Martin Buber's son Raphael, um, with whom I developed a very special relationship. The German, he was he was born in Germany. Uh, they have a, probably you know this Abendbrot at four o'clock tea and coffee and a little sandwich every day for fifteen years. I would go to Martin Buber's son Raphael for Avonbrod and conversation about the family. And he constantly told me, as he got older, he constantly repeated stories, that his father said, Raphael, whatever you do in life, if you're a shoemaker, that'd be fine, a gardener, that would be fine, but do it with integrity and a sense of excellence. Um, let your own voice, you know, some of our voices are echo well, resonate in academic life or in medicine, others, carpenters, whatever. Um, good parenting is, of course, to help a person discover his or her own voice. And that's true in our relationships, the relationships of trust. If you want to put it with schmaltzy, we can sing together, even though we're out of tune. But, uh, but uh, when we have a trusting relationship, there's a fundamental, can I use the word, existential harmony. Now, Buber also extended this teaching to politics. And you'll allow me a bit of a political concerns. Um, 
we live in a world, uh, not only in relationship with one human being to another, but in communities. And communities often in conflict. Um, and the Jews found themselves in conf conflicting situations in a diaspora, and ultimately, of course, when we return to the land of Israel. There's a concept in philosophy called moral luck. The Norwegians have moral luck. They don't have many minorities. They have a lot of wealth. They can be nice. Uh, uh, and they are nice. Uh, there are cultures which are born into unlucky situations. And it's difficult to be nice. And it's difficult for the Jews in the diaspora where you have, well, I don't know about Arizona, but there's anti-Semitism in the world. Even at the university, there's implicit. Uh, there I'm branded a Jew. Oh, I'm, I'm Paul, Penchas, if you wish. But I'm certainly branded as a representative Jew, um, which is all right, but it means that they're casting me in an it, it con constellation, according to very given categories what they, whom they believe Jews are. Um, and we can do that in many subtle ways, of course, itting other human beings. Um, I forgot what I wanted to say to you. Uh, where was I? Politics. Oh, politics, right. <laughs> and the, um, but Israel, of course, we, um, Israel is the, marks the, the reestablishment of Jewish so political sovereignty, um, where we could protect ourselves from the, the scourge of anti-Semitism. And there was a scourge. That Israel was born out of the ashes of Auschwitz. Um, and we're all familiar with that. And those of us who survived, even indirectly, are scarred by that experience. But we find ourselves, first of all, the situation is not one of moral luck, obviously. <laughs> uh, and the fact that the land of Israel is contested with its native population, the Palestinians, renders that moral misfortune even much more difficult. Um, as my father would say, Ay vey. That's the Jewish <laughs> Did you, you say oy vey here in Arizona? Yeah? Oh. Yeah. Oy. <laughs> uh, Jewish life, we can call it moral luck if you want to be philosophical, but it's a continuous oy <laughs> Jewish existence. But that challenges us to somehow, nonetheless, according to Buber, to reach out to the other whom we're in conflict with and to establish some sense of mutual trust. That's a challenge. Uh, that Buber um, subscribed to when he settled in the land of Israel. Um, and that cast in many ways as an outsider because Zionism was focused on political rehabilitation, uh, securing uh, the possibility of our own state, uh, even though the Palestinians are obviously not happy about that project um, and still not very happy about the project. <laughs> um, but if we're going to live with um, with others, uh, we have to work at establishing dialogue uh, with our neighbors. I wouldn't say more than that, but you can imagine what, how we can elaborate that position. I think here I'll po um, uh, pause and invite questions, queries, um, and we could obviously elaborate. Um, and don't be afraid of me, even though she introduced me as a professor. Yeah, let me say something I mentioned in the earlier stage. You forgive me for repeating a story. Um, when my daughter was now 42 and has four children, she was nine years old, um, and she was curious what a father does. 
Uh, so Mavra said, why don't you accompany Dad, Abba, to the university and see what he does? And she did. And she sat in the first row, came home, and the mother said, no, her name is Inbal. Inbal, how was it? And she goes like this. I'll say in Hebrew for those who... Abba milmet shtuyot. Dad, my father teaches this nonsense. <laughs> uh, and I'm very well aware that I'm teaching nonsense in the sense that it may not be fully sent, uh, understand what I'm saying, uh, especially since my voice doesn't project that well. Um, so if you want to render my nonsense into something more sensible, do ask questions. And each of you have four questions. <laughs> Although we only have 15 minutes, so <laughs> please. Yes? Um, I just wonder where Bluber lived when he moved to Jerusalem. Where did he live? Yeah. He lived in an area called Talbia which is between the German colony and, and the Rechavia. Yeah. Yes? Did, um, did Gandhi and any of Gandhi's followers respond to Buber's letter? Well, now I have to tell you what Gandhi's letter is. <laughs> That's an unfair question since it requires a, a long answer. Um, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the great advocate of passive resistance, a uh, message he brought to India, uh, and it's, uh, opposing British rule in India. He said the Jews should remain in Germany and elsewhere in, Ger in Europe and amount a passive resistance. Um, and of course, he, as uh, a former resident of um, South Africa, he was very attentive to the needs of the uh, uh, Indian Muslim minority. As you know, the Indian the, the citizens or the residents of the continental uh, India, uh, some are Muslims. They now live largely in Pakistan, and others are Hindu, uh, and various um, configurations thereof. Um, so he was very attentive to the Muslims. Um, you shouldn't be disturbing the Palestinians. It's their country, and why you to stay here in Germany? Uh, he wrote this in 1938, when obviously it was clear that not only was Hitler bent on removing Jews from um, German society, rescinding, taking back emancipation, forcing the Jews back into some sort of ghetto. You should stay there in passive resistance. And Buber responded. Um, and he responded in a very careful way. He took him several weeks to write a letter to Gandhi. That's what uh, we're referring to. Um, in which he said, obviously, um, you're recommending suicide. These are ruthless people. They're not going to respond to a passive resistance. Um, we need the safety of our own home, hoping that we'd be able to create our own home, and not at the expense of the Palestinians, but to live with them in an honorable way. But that's a challenge that we face. Um, and he sent that letter to uh, Gandhi. No answer. No answer. Today, the scholars believe they found some sort of notes of Gandhi preparing a response, but he never had the, uh, the, the graciousness to respond. Um, Anyway, uh, you had a question. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, do the words uh, trust and faith have anything to do with the words I and thou? No, oh, that we, we say in English, no. Uh, not, not grammatically or etymologically, no. Um, but it's uh, I and thou, can I use a fancy word? I'll explain it if you know. It's a phenomenology of, of trust. It means the consciousness that we take into trust. Um, um, and the difficulties of gaining trust and sustaining trust. Um, 
And ultimately for Buber, uh, that is a religious task because our relationship as Jews is to have trust in God's world. And so it's, why thou, by the way? Uh, uh, Buber debated with a translator of his book, I Should Do. It was translated into English by a, a, a Presbyterian Scottishman, a man named Ronald Smith, and they have a long correspondence how to, how to, um, to translate the book. Uh, and since do, that little word you, the pers impersonal pronoun, you is used also in prayer, or the way we dress God, Buber wanted to echo that our relationships with one another, our, what he called I-thou relationships, also somehow resonate with our relationship to God. And, uh, and for Buber, the primary relationship we have with God is, should be, and here he follows the Hasidism as he understands the movement, and that's disputed whether he understood it correctly, but that's the way he understood it, um, is in our relationships with one another, our relationship in the, market, the, uh, the marketplace, everyday life, the trivial experiences of everyday life, um, that resonates our relationship to God. So in some sense, he wanted to bring God out of the synagogue and place God in, into the, uh, uh, the framework, the matrix, if you like the word, of everyday life. How you relate to one another as a teacher, as a parent, uh, as a physician. I should tell you, I have a good friend who teaches Buber at, at uh, Tel Aviv a Medical School to teach the doctors how to be not just uh, practitioners of medicine, but also to have dialogical relationships with their patients. For after all, the patients are our fellow human beings. Um, it's a unique program, but it's well, well established at Tel Aviv University. Please, sir. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of echoes of uh, this dialogical approach in, in psychotherapeutics. Yes, so you're a psychologist. Right. Uh, in Israel, the same gentleman who teaches uh, Buber to physicians, he's a, a Jungian psychotherapist or a psycho psychoanalyst. Um, he established a group of psych uh, psychiatrists, social workers, some 50 Israelis who meet and discuss Buber or the challenges of dialogue within their practice, therapeutic practice. Uh, there are some in the United States uh, who have also developed what they call humanistic therapy. Um, you may be familiar with the car, uh, debate Buber with Carl Rogers regarding uh, therapy. You know, so certainly that goes very strongly in certain schools of, um, of mental health. Another question. So you, there was a, there was a uh, University of Michigan uh, longitudinal study that showed how that in the last few decades empathy had dropped. Empathy has dropped in America by 40%. And one of the many, one of the many explanations for dominance is that we look more at screens than at eyeballs, right? This dialogue, this encounter face to face. And I remember reading something some time ago, which I think is oversimplified. But you can tell me if it's totally wrong or just partially wrong. Um, Since you're my host, I have to tell you right. <laughs> Whatever you say. Is. Which compared um, uh, uh, the human encounter between Buber and Levinas, suggesting that for Levinas, the encounter of the other had to go beyond the other into the political realm, and that for Buber, it had to remain right there. It would be an act of spiritual violence to extend this I now beyond this encounter into a political realm. And that was a big, that was one distinguishing between Levinas and Buber. Partially right, totally wrong? 
kind of. <laughs> let me, it let me backtrack. Start right. the, the issue is that the other for Levinas functions very differently yeah. than the other for Buber. Yeah, let me just backtrack firstly. Uh, Buber objected to the term empathy, and it's just to all those who are, because empathy has a possibility of projecting yourself on others. So he, he coined the term umfassung in German to include the other person's point of view in your own, to listen. And the great challenge of dialogue is how to listen. Not to hear, we all hear. But listening is a very different, act, is another act, different, it's a very different activity. Um, to listen to the voice of the other. And we never have perfect pitch, or perfect um, acoustic ability, so to speak. And, uh, but we have to learn to listen. Um, there's always a, some sort of incommensurability of another person's subjective realm in our own. But um, empathy is a word that he, he felt uh, courts the danger of projection. Uh, so we share each other's narrative, if you wish. Uh, that's the nature of relationships. If I mentioned the relationship with my wife, courting each other, we're sharing our narratives and mending our, uh, melding our, our, our narratives and then expanding the narrative when we have a shared life with our children and grandchildren. Uh, dog, cat, again, I'm trying to be humorous, <laughs> but in any event, uh, um, as Chavez suggested, uh, Buber's conception of the other, the other human being, is very different. Buber claimed that I dialogue is not a question of ethics. It's not a question of being um, a, a nice, per se, if you wish. To understand ethics as being nice, menschlich, if you wish, with the other. Um, Ethics may emerge, ethical decisions may emerge from dialogue, but it's not what primes dialogue. And Buber, in an exchange with Levinas, said something very succinct and profound, I believe. Um, Levinas speaks about responding to the, uh, the need of the other, um, and often the material need of the other. Um, so Buber responds to Levinas, says, when every human being is well-clothed, and well-fed, there'll still be the challenge of dialogue, our existential need. Um, and it's mutual. Uh, I need you as much as you need me. Uh, it's not giving myself to the other, uh, as it would be as an ethical uh, moment or an ethical gesture. Um, love is, by very de definition, dialogue, biological. It's I and thou. And the and is not separation, but it's bringing one another into one another. When he speaks about, uh, when Buber spoke about relationships with one human being and another, also with, with uh, communities with which, in, which, with which, in which we're in conflict, he, just, he said the challenge is, and he used the German, nebeneinander, not to live next to each other. Good friends are good, was it good walls make good friends and neighbors? But the German is miteinander, how to live with one another. Um, and that is a challenge. That's difficult to live with another. And it's difficult to live with another person, you, in my case, my wife, or even my children. And they obviously find it difficult to live with me. Uh, I made it easy for them because I live four months a year in Chicago. <laughs> That's a glorious moment that they have. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, to live with one another is the challenge, not just next to one another. Um, and that's an existential, if you wish, challenge, um, which is not per se a moral. It has moral implications. Ethical implications. Yeah, please. Uh, ladies first, forgive me. <laughs> address. When you mentioned the letter that he wrote to the woman who 
ultimately became his wife. Where he said he had found a mother. And you said yourself that a mother's love is... Is unconditional. It's it, it just so intrinsic. It has to be there. And now I'll go to the personal. My husband had a most peculiar childhood. Had a most... <laughs> peculiar childhood. Yes. Including being a hidden child during the Nazi occupation of France. But one of the best compliments he ever gave me in my whole life of our marriage, we were sitting at the lunch table one day, and he looked at me and he said, I have never been as cared for as I have been since I married you. Beautiful. Now, he had a mother who adored him, who was in a difficult situation. He had been married before to a woman who gave him five children. He had good relationships. But as far as I'm concerned, that was one of the best compliments I've ever had in my whole life. And if, if Boomer felt that this woman was as caring of him as a mother, with the bonus of sex and all the rest of it, but that depth of caring, of love, of seeing the other person as a thou, as the connection, that complete dialogue between those between two people. I think that was a wonderful compliment he gave to her. But that's just my personal opinion. Oh, no, no. It's, it's a very accurate description of the nature of their relationship. She was very nurturing also with respect to his, his intellectual life, his spiritual journey. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And she gave him the strength to carry on. We have a prayer in Judaism, which is usually referred to the woman, Eshet Chayel, the valorous woman. Yeah. And she was an Eshet Chayel, clearly. Well, behind every successful man, there's an exhausted woman. <laughs> <laughs> May I say something about, about Paula? Can I yes, ask yes, yes. Just as a follow-up to, uh, to Rosemary's question. Um, what really concerns me is that the story of Paula is never fully told. Paula was a writer who actually published under a pseudonym. I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. you know that. Um, maybe she treated him as a mother, but it's not clear what she got in return. It's obviously not a father... He did not treat her as a father. She was the mother to him, but not the other way around, right? right? So what, what's the dynamic there? She seems to me such an enigma, this woman, mm -hmm. uh, this Paula Winkler. What was her name in Hebrew? Was she Ruth in Hebrew? No, no, uh, you, you did. You did. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, Judith, if you wish. Um, of course, she lived in an area where women really didn't have, their voice was not regarded as, um, as comparable to that of a man, and so she... <laughs> did publish under a, a pseudonym, a, a man, George, uh, George Monk, uh, a man's name. Buber encouraged her. They, had a, they did have a, a mutual admiration relationship. Um, and he promoted her. And we have a correspondence between Buber and all the great writers of the, of the 20th century. Help my wife find a publisher. The most telling correspondence is with Thomas Mann um, between Buber and and with Buber, asking Thomas, can you do, please help my wife find a publisher? Um, and eventually, um, well, it was during the war, and eventually she did find a voice. And he wrote a beautiful, beautiful essay 
in his, celebrating his wife's writings. Um, they remained, if I can use the word, lovers in a deepest sense of the term until her, um, she proceeded to um, uh, into the, the very end of, the, of their 60 years together. Um, but you had, you had a question, sir? Yeah. yeah. He knows my wife. I don't know how you do. <laughs> so if, if uh, it, uh, Ichendu is a relationship about God that's based on trust, yes. uh, I understand trust is something that's reciprocal, it's two-way, it's mutual. And I know the sense of what we, how we can trust in God, I can understand that side of it. How did Buddha perceive God's side of that relationship? What was his trust in the relationship yeah. with man? Here he remains, um, just an easy word, and not an accurate word, agnostic. We can't speak about God uh, in any active sense. Um, Jewish traditions and shared with Christians and Muslims speaks about God's providence, that God is active in our lives. God protects us. God is the source of justice, concern, love. Um, often we don't experience it that way. Um, and yet we are to maintain trust um, in one another and in the world. Um, it's I like... Think, uh, yeah. I think that God's trust in us is that we... is imitatio Dei. He trusts us. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, yes. We, to, to, to somehow emulate... To, to emulate... Yes. What he sets as his objectives for us. Yes. He that, trusts us. That is certainly true, and that's what Buber would put it that way as well. You should perhaps be given the lecture. <laughs> I can only say it was worth shaking from the other side of the valley to hear you. <laughs> Please, you had a question. Yeah. Is going to be a little more technical about the phenomenology of trust. Um, I guess that my question starts with the simple definition of phenomenology being the, um, the study of the phenomenon. Now, I see how you can get there with someone like who works in the tradition of, Heide, of Heidegger, where there's a being as a phenomenon or with Levinas. I guess this goes to the different models of speaking of phenomenology or with someone like Levinas, where there's an other as a, as a phenomenon. Um, I have trouble seeing that kind of phenomenology, obviously, in, in, um, in Buber, who just speaks about the term innerlichkeit, which is a term that we often find in Kohn, someone like Kohn who really likes it. Yeah. Um, I guess that my question is then, wherein lies the phenomenon? Pardon? Wherein lies the phenomenon for the phenomenology? It seems always to me, and maybe that's not really a question, but maybe it could. It's yeah. Well, it... Maybe, maybe I have trouble seeing in Buber the phenomenon yeah. for the logos. I'm going to address you in a way which everyone can perhaps yeah. understand. I, I told you it's technical, yeah. but I'm willing to yeah. hold it back. No, no, no. no. Um, phenomenology is the term phenomenology is borrowed from objects that appear to us. The German word, is, we see, uh, and the English word, is borrowed from the Greek, something that appears, appears to our five senses, preeminently this, that of vision. Um, and when we speak of phenomenology, we're talking about uh, consciousness. Um, for instance, phenomenology of sports. You're not talking about the details of sports, but what's the experience of those who participate in sports, or uh, um, are spectators in sports. Uh, and that can go, I have a book uh, that I'm planning to read on the phenomenology of sleep. <laughs> uh, but it, um, 
But there are two fundamental schools um, of phenomenology. One is you made a reference to, um, but there's another school which is close to Buber. When Buber went to um, the university, he studied with a given professor named Diltai, D-I-L-T-H-E-Y, but pronounced Diltai. Now, Diltai introduced into our um, nomenclature distinction between humanistic studies and scientific studies. The German term is Geisteswissenschaft, the study of human spirit, uh, as opposed to Naturwissenschaft, the study of, of, of nature. You can hear it. And we now, throughout the world, abide by this distinction between natural sciences and the humanistic sciences. And what brought him to the, uh, his Bubis teacher? Uh, and Bubis, at the very end of his life, said, I had only one teacher, true teacher, and that was Diltai. Uh, as opposed to perhaps Husserl. Um, um, anyway, I don't want to get into that, those details. No, I, uh, yeah, so let me just explain what, uh, what, what I think is the source of, uh, of Buber's understanding of, of this project uh, so that everyone can really plug into it, as you say. Um, you may all be perfectly at home in, in the language of Heidegger and Husserl, but I have to assume perhaps not. Uh, so uh, at least let you know that I have an, an understanding of the issues. Um, prevailing in Germany, given the excitement of the enlightenment in science, that we, that we can measure the world, we can understand the world, and we don't need providence to explain the world. We don't need God to explain the world. Um, but reason, as it's, uh, as it's disciplined in what we now call science. Uh, and that led to uh, what we call positivism. It means... Uh, obviously, if I want to explain how this cup is, is uh, constructed, I would have to go into this is plastic, go into chemistry, and et cetera. Um, but when you apply, this is what Diltai was concerned with, when you apply the, uh, the categories of science to human relationships, you shortchange yourself. Give an example. When someone cries, you don't relate to those tears by measuring the chemical compound of tears or the ocular uh, mechanism that generates tears. Uh, he said you have to do something different. Um, in the scientific positive approach, you explain how the world operates in categories of time, space, causality, and the like. Um, when it comes to human affairs, you need a very different approach, and that's called understanding. And understanding is imperfect, as he suggested, but it's very different. So when we relate to someone crying, it's not the question of measuring the chemical compound of tears or the ocular mechanism of, the, uh, of the crying, but uh, of understanding. Uh, and we, here we do, of course, relate to our own experience of crying. Uh, it's always a reflexive moment. That's what Buber understood by uh, uh, the phenomenology of, of trust. Um, how we experience trust, how we experience the lack of trust. Um, and that's not uh, the school of Heidegger, as I understand Heidegger. And in fact, the Buber, or Levinas, no. Um, um, well, I just throw you, I wrote a long essay on Buber's encounter with Heidegger. Uh, he constantly in debate with Heidegger, and they saw each other out. Uh, I'll give you a reference, but it's a different, whole different school of of what we call phenomenology. Um, but he doesn't overuse the term. Uh, uh, okay, this is going to be interesting. 
Yeah, we can, we can talk about that. Okay. Um, but it, the question is, of course, of understanding one another. Um, and that means learning to, to listen. Um, yeah. Okay, I'll ask afterwards about okay. what the other people do about it. Okay, I'll ask afterwards. Okay. Any further questions? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Kaya, right? Pardon? Hoover joined a Zionist movement. Yes. Could you tell us what role or what was his uh, influence at all? Or was it, yeah. Yes. You know, one of, um, the Zionist movement as a, as, a, uh, um, as a world organization that uh, was initiated by Peter Herzl, alarmed by the growing anti-Semitism. Uh, anti-Semitism um, in the latter part of the 19th century throughout Europe was uh, gained a political structure. There were political parties that regarded themselves as anti-Semitic. Um, the term anti-Semitism was uh, coined in the 1890s, excuse me, 1870s. Uh, first of all, to refer to the Jews as Semites means they're not Europeans. They come from elsewhere, from the areas, um, and they're insinuating us themselves in our culture uh, and destroying it. It's a, it's a, a virus that has taken over Europe. Uh, and a gentleman named, well, gentleman's the wrong word. <laughs> I'll be kind, call me a gentleman. A man named Mar uh, said, we have to stand up and resist the Semites. Resist them as they enter our, our world, insinuating themselves. And he coined the term anti-Semitism, to resist them. And that caught fire. Uh, and we all know where it went. Uh, I should also, since we're talking about it, um, the Jews were liberated from the ghettos um, in the late um, 19, uh, 18th century, uh, but only partially, incrementally, and sometimes we were, they were sent back, so to speak. Uh, Jewish, the story of Jewish emancipation um, is never fully completed until the end of the First World War. Marvelous, lucky, no way, only emancipated the Jews in 1918. Tsarist so, Russia under the Soviets, only in 1918. Uh, in, uh, after the war in Germany, the, the remaining uh, uh, impediments to Jewish integration were removed. It's a long story. The story was accompanied by a question, the so-called Jewish question. Can the Jews really be integrated in our society? Can we accept them? Are they capable? And the racial anti-Semites said somatically, they're not, they can get nose jobs, they can change the na their names, but they remain in their heart Jewish. Um, that's racial anti-Semitism. There's no way the Jews are incorrigibly Jewish. That's a very ferocious notion. And along came Hitler and said, I got the ultimate solution to the Jewish question. That's a long and painful story. And we tend to forget it because we now we're happy to be Jews, and we see ourselves in material well, benefits of, uh, of the Western world. But Jewish life was painful. So Herzl responded to that, uh, especially in Vienna. There was an anti-Semitic, political anti-Semite, uh, as the mayor. Um, and there were a lot of Jews living in, in, in Vienna, and Vienna was the capital of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Huge population, Jewish population. Uh, so it was a very urgent issue. So, um, 
and I'll just use a German for um, Herzl spoke about the, no, the Judenot, which means the distress of the Jewish people. There are others who felt that the real urgent problem was how to adjust Judaism to a modern world. And they call it Not des Judentums, the distress of Judaism. Uh, and the solution was, for many, was to reconstruct Judaism as a culture uh, and tap the humanistic sources of Jewish culture, uh, traditional Judaism, to, to uh, resonate with modern humanistic sensibilities. Uh, Buber was drawn to the latter, and we call it cultural or sometimes spiritual Zionism. Um, he felt that was more urgent than uh, resisting anti-Semitism, although that certainly was part of the concern. So the Zionist movement split, and it's like a coat of many colors. There were a lot of nuances. Um, what disturbed Buber about political uh, Zionism was its, um, its courting what we call realpolitik. Uh, you make friends with people who are on your side, you manipulate, you get into propaganda. Uh, it's a rough world, and you respond in a rough way politically. Sometimes you call it political realism. And Buber felt that political realism such uh, uh, undermined the spiritual uh, integrity of Judaism. Um, that we, although we have no choice but to respond to the, the trauma of Jewish existence in the modern world, with the resistance to Jewish question, um, we cannot do so by forfeiting our, our spiritual heritage. Um, so that's the type of Zionism Buber referred to uh, or understood. He called it humanistic Judaism. Sometimes he spoke about biblical humanism, Hebrew humanism. Um, maybe I just give another word, uh, a way of understanding uh, the tension within Jewish life even today um, is what, um, what is, has been called on one hand where the supernatural Jew, the Jew who sees his life as beholden utterly to God. Uh, all aspects of our life are beholden to God. Um, with the emancipation of the Jews, the natural Jew becomes a prominent. The Jew has to feed a family, uh, develop a career, um, uh, uh, individual talents. That was very limited in the ghetto. Um, the modern period is, uh, is the emergence of the natural Jew. Uh, Zionism and its core concerns is, is attention to the needs of the natural Jew. The Jew finds himself in, in historical, political, sociological conditions. Um, but Buber was concerned that in this process of, 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 a, of an urgent attention to the needs of the natural Jew, the supernatural Jew was eclipsed. Um, and he wanted to find a balance between the supernatural Jew and the natural Jew. Just expanding on that, the part, of, quite, the, oh, sorry, so part of that balance, in, <coughs> is it correct? He abandoned his practice of Judaism, synagogue Judaism, as such? Yeah. That's a complicated question. I'll be brief because I, I got the signal that we have to conclude. Um, in the wake of the First World War, it seemed that the whole project of the Enlightenment was collapsing. Uh, the Enlightenment believed in, uh, in technological, scientific advancement, progress, uh, but also believed in ethical progress. If we just bring reason to control as the ultimate arbiter of what is true and meaningful uh, in all spheres, obviously, in the material sphere in which we live, but also our ethical life, our political life, we will be on, on the road to paradise. That's proved itself to be um, bankrupt. After all, the First World War was fought 
by educated people, the custodians of the, the, of the beliefs of the Enlightenment. And they were butchered one another. They had Kant in their uh, Kant, great philosopher, in their pockets, and yet they were willing to somehow, and that's certainly true in the Second World War, uh, a nation of poets and thinkers as the Germans saw themselves proved to be barbarians. But perhaps all human beings are capable of being barbarians. Uh, nonetheless, they were, and it led, led to a collapse. And as, that was, as those, uh, the Enlightenment project was collapsing in Europe, Buber joined another group of people, a uh, group of philosophers and psychoanalysts, including Freud, uh, to reflect on why did it collapse? What about human nature that allowed, um, that proved so fragile? Uh, and they came to the conclusion, Freud writes it around, and you're perhaps familiar with Freud's essay on the First World War. You know, we teach our children not to lie. We teach our children not to abuse others. And what do we do in politics? We do lie, called propaganda. We do abuse other people to the extreme of killing them. And that dissonance, uh, Freud felt, was a source of mass neurosis. Um, on a more theological and ethical level, um, and this is where Buber comes into the picture, um, the tendency of the modern world to relegate religious life to, um, to rhetoric, to certain days of the week, certain hours of the week, certain calendrical moments, holidays, and remove religion from um, the public sphere um, is, is in con concurrence with removing a certain type of ethical codes from the public sphere. Um, we have to bring the included, I can throw out names of the people who are involved with this, but it's not crucial, but there was eventually very prominent individuals, including Buber, who claimed that the urgent now, urgent test now is to, to, re, um, to revise that um, tendency of the Enlightenment to relegate religion to certain days of the week. You know, and moreover, the question of personal taste. Max Weber, who was a great sociologist, wrote extensively on religion. So he said, in a candid moment, tell you the truth, I don't have an ear from religion. I can describe it sociologically, but I just don't hear it. It doesn't speak to me. It's been almost a college. I don't have an ear for it. And that's why modern understand. Some people have an ear from religion or like religion, feel whatever reason, but it's, um, it's selective and it's individuated in this extreme sense. We have to bring God back into the, into the marketplace. Um, and that Bubasaur is his task. And bring God back to the marketplace without a clear theology. Because that would be, that's speculative. It's metaphysics and it, we don't have any legitimate tools to speak about God in that way. But we can speak about, as was said so well by yourself, to bring uh, back the notion that we are custodians of what we in Jewish tradition understand to be creation. Great, thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community 
indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.